Happy Mother's Day. Nothing says Happy Mother's Day like about a 30-minute block of time talking about two mountains in the Middle East. <laughs> so that's what we're down for. My apologies, but maybe there's some nuggets in here for you moms. Uh, we're in a series called Mountaintop Moments. We're looking at an overview of the Old Testament from key mountaintops along the way. And so this morning we're at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. I think we have a little map to show us where that is. There it is. And as we look at them this morning, we're really focusing, the point of it is keep the commandments. And so moms, maybe they'll leave willing to keep the commandment of, of uh, honoring their father and mother. Like maybe you can get some tips on that, like obey your parents. So there's some stuff in here for moms. I'll do my best to tease it out. But um, that's where we are this morning geographically. Last week, we were at Mount Nebo. If you see that dot. And the children of Israel had moved. We were all the way to the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, Moses had gone up Mount Nebo last week. And he actually died at the top of Mount Nebo. And the children of Israel pass on into the promised land without him. He led them out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, and they went to the promised land border, and they didn't have the faith to go in, so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they came back, and this time they crossed over and they had the faith to go in. But now Moses is dead, Joshua is their new leader, and Joshua will lead them across the Jordan River and into the promised land. That's why the next book in your Bibles after Deuteronomy is the book of Joshua. And as we follow their entrance into the promised land, God parts the Jordan River, just like he did the Red Sea, and they cross into their promised land to inhabit this land that God had promised them for generations. The first place they come to, though, is Jericho, a walled city. And God, as you learned this song when you were a kid in church, uh, makes the walls come tumbling down. Then they move on from Jericho to the city of Ai. After they conquer Ai, then we come to Joshua chapter 8, which is where we're going to see Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal this morning. Now, before we look closely at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, I do want to just hit pause for a minute, quick parentheses to where we're going to be this morning, and acknowledge the fact that what I just summarized and what we put to a kid's song is actually some of the most difficult content in the scriptures, is some of the most difficult content in our faith. So what God called the children of Israel to do was to go into an inhabited land and wipe out the wicked people that lived there, men, women, and children. So when the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, the men and the women and the children die so the children of Israel can come in and inhabit a previously inhabited land. So this is very difficult content for us to process because Jesus who we follow says that we should love our enemies and do good to those who hurt us and yet we have passages like this in the Old Testament where God calls his people to move into the promised land and displace all these people and wipe them out to make matters worse for us if this bothers us it's not the first time and it's not the last time that God is going to do this Genesis chapter 4 he floods the whole earth all the wicked people and he only saves a handful in Noah's ark in the future, what our scriptures tell us is that Jesus is going to return to this earth and he's going to rule and reign in righteousness and he's going to restore this earth that we're on to be what he intended it to be back in the beginning. And then it will just be righteousness and goodness and eternity with God. But for him to do that, what does he have to do first? Deal with the wickedness. So this, I don't like it. So this is me just being transparent with you this morning. I don't like it. Like I wrestle with it. 
on top 10 list of things that bother me about the faith that I am part of and that I preach, this is at the very top of the list. And so I just let you know that in transparency that I wrestle with it as perhaps you wrestle with it. And I try to understand how God can love and serve and yet deal with wickedness. Um, a, a quote that gives me some comfort is uh, from a pastor named Tim Keller. And I've, read, I've shared this quote with you before. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If the God you worship never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So I read that to myself and I say, okay, there is this category of my faith that troubles me. And if I were writing this book, I would write it differently. But I'm not. I'm submitting to it. I'm yielding to it. And I'm saying I don't like it and I don't understand it, but I'm going to yield to it and trust that it's true and look forward to a day yet to come when God will, in his infinite wisdom, help me understand how he rules the world. So it just helps me see, because I think what a lot of people do in the world today and probably have done for generations is they do. They project what they want God to be. They just project that onto him. And then it helps them sleep better at night. It helps them be happier in the faith that they have chosen. But then you look at their faith that they're a proponent of, and you're like, well, that's not actually what the scriptures say. You kind of just, in your imagination, imagine how you want God to be, and you've created this new category of faith for yourself that doesn't actually align with these ancient scriptures. And so you've just projected this romanticized idea onto God of what you want him to be, and it's not actually the God that is. And so we're going to try and submit to the God who is and live in the tension of these troubling and alarming passages. So that's the parentheses. That's just us not pretending like these difficult things don't exist. They do, but that's not actually the topic for our morning. It lies on either side of our passage. But we're in John chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, to see what happens at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. So they've just left Ai, they've just entered this promised land, they have these two battles behind them, and at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. If we pause there for just a minute. They come, and they have made an altar, and they've made sacrifices on the altar. And then they've made these two stone tablets, and they're writing the law on them. So all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua, Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, the women, the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. So what's happening here? Joshua has moved into this valley with Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal on either side. He's set up an altar to God. They sacrifice on the altar. And then they write the, the law of God on these stone tablets. Scholars say you might as well just imagine a second set of stone tablets like Charlton Heston was holding. 
he just writes another copy of the law for the people to read. Then, after they've made the altar and they've done their sacrifice, they've written the law on the stones. Then they have the ceremony where he says, half of you people go to Mount Ebal and half of you people go to Mount Gerizim. The Levitical priest will stay in the valley and he will declare the law and you will affirm it as you listen. So that's the scene. The general point of the sermon this morning is just keep the commandments. I think that's the whole point of this passage is we're trying to get the people of God as they enter into the promised land to get it ingrained into their heads. They need to keep the commandments of God. And so they have this elaborate scene between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim whereby they're supposed to keep the commandments. Now, it's a strange story. It's a strange ceremony. So as we seek to understand it together, here's, the, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask five questions. These are five questions you can ask anytime you read the Bible. It's really good questions to ask. Ask who, what, where, when, and why. So as you read the Bible and you hit a confusing section, just pause and ask yourself, okay, who, what, where, when, and why. So the who. Who participated in this ceremony from the passage that we read? Who needs to keep the commandments? Who needs to be reminded of all the commandments? Well, that's all of Israel. It said that in verse 33. In verse 35, it says that he read the law before them, before the assembly of Israel, before the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Everyone. So if we try to apply this to our lives today, who needs to keep the commandments today? Everyone. Everyone. The men, the women, the children, the little ones, the sojourners, all of us. It was important for all of them to keep the commandments. It's important for all of us to keep the commandments. Now, the ancient Near East was a time when men ruled the world. If you were reading this thousands of years ago or even a few hundred years ago, what might stand out to you is that God just said that he wanted all the women there as well. And he wanted all the children there as well. And he even wanted those sojourners, those people that were not native-born to the people of Israel, and they were to also be there. So the men, the women, the children, and the sojourners, all were supposed to participate which would not have been a normal thing in the ancient Near East. It's interesting how times have changed, though. Our world today is significantly different in countless ways from the ancient Near East. The average church in America today that gathers will have a majority of women and children in it, and men will be the minority. Times have changed. It could be that if God were to call us together and speak to us and want us to go out to Mount Washington and do a ceremony, he might say, hey, I know the women and children will come, but please make sure the men are there as well. He wants us all present. It's sometimes easy for me as parents with Awana on our mind. It's easy for us as parents to drop off our kids at Awana and be like, it's really important for you kids to memorize the Bible and learn about God. Meanwhile, mom and dad, we're just going to go shopping. Or we drop our kids off at youth group and we tell our teenagers, it's really important for you to have community, to have Christians around you because there's lots of peer pressures in the world and, and that's a good space for you. And then, but I'll pick you up. I'm just going to go home and watch TV by myself for two hours. It's easy for us to drop our kids off down the hall and tell them it's really important for you to pay attention and listen to your teachers today. Meanwhile, some of us just sit in here and do one of these. Maybe you're keeping it really low and pretending to read the Bible. So if it's important for our children, it's important for us, isn't it? It's important for all of us. And there are certainly times I think it's also important for us to all come together, men and women, and even the little ones and the sojourners. 
If you pay close attention to a calendar, you'll notice that there are four times in every calendar year there are five Sundays in a month. On those fifth Sundays, we intentionally gather the children in here so that it's men, women, and little ones for us all together to be being reminded to keep the commandments of God. And we ought not to forget about the sojourner. The sojourner in those days would have been people perhaps traveling through the land or they've heard stories about what the God of Israel has done, how he parts the Red Sea, how he conquered the nation of Egypt. And they say like, whoa, I want to be a part of this group. This is intriguing. This is interesting. I want to follow this God. But they hadn't seen all the things that everyone else had seen. They were just figuring it out. They were just trying to understand some of the customs and what's going on with this people. And God says, bring them too. We all need to come together. And so we all need to come together. We all need to keep in mind that when we gather, we want the sojourner here too. The sojourner in 2023 here is probably those people who, who are just starting to join us, who are just starting to say like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I would like to learn more about this God. I would like to come and be with you. And so as we communicate, we should remind ourselves that we need to explain it in such a way that the children can understand and explain it in such a way that the sojourner can understand because they sometimes don't understand what we're talking about. We use big words and we talk about things as if everybody knows what we're talking about. And so we have to remember who, who is gathered together. We are all called to keep the commandments of God. And so we should communicate that in a way that we can all understand it. That's the who, the what and the where. So the what and the where, we're going to tackle both of those together because they're just interconnected in the story. So let's look, first look at the where because it's relevant to the what. So we have a picture of the where. If you were to go to Israel today, this is the scene you would see. That's Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And the town of Shechem lies between them. So as you can see, the mountains aren't far apart from one another. People have actually gone and done this experiment where somebody stands in the valley below and shouts things out, and can you hear them from the hillsides of Ebal and Gerizim? And it seems to work. And so that's the scene. That's where they were located. Now, Shechem becomes a very important city in the ancient Near East. There's a trade route that runs between Gerizim and Ebal. And so we learn that this is a major thoroughfare that will be established. And so it's strategic of God for him to write the law at a strategic thoroughfare through the ancient Near East that they'll be traveling by in this valley. And so that's the where he sends half of them to Ebal and half of them to Gerizim. And in the middle where you see the word Shechem is where they shout out the law for everyone to listen to the reading of the law. So that's, that's the where and, and some of the what. As we lean into the what, Joshua chapter 8 gave us this snapshot. So there's an altar on Ebal. They make a sacrifice there. They write this, the, the law on these stone tablets. And then half of them on either mountain, Ark of the Covenant in the valley, and Joshua reads the word of the law. But if you notice in verse 35, it said, and Joshua did all that Moses commanded. Well, Moses actually commanded more than is in the snapshot in Joshua chapter 8. Moses actually had more elaborate instructions written in Deuteronomy chapter 27. So if we want to actually just turn back to Deuteronomy 27, we can actually get an even closer uh, picture of what happened at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Because Joshua did all these things written in Deuteronomy 27. They just didn't take the time to rewrite them. And so verse 20, chapter 27, verse 1 says, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on that day that you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. 
And you shall write on them all the words of this law. And when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, and when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning what I command you today on Mount Ebal. And you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. And you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings. And you shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So there's a couple of details that jumped out to me when I read it. And since um, I'm the one speaking, you have to track with me on what I think is interesting. All right? I apologize. Because well, here's what I think is interesting. The altar. The altar is supposed to be made of uncut stones. It said that in Deuteronomy and it said it in Joshua, if you were paying attention. You're not allowed to wield an iron tool on the stones. To make it even more interesting, in Exodus chapter 20, when God was giving the law at Mount Sinai, he actually told Moses explicitly, if you make an altar of stone... You shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Now, that's weird. Why wouldn't you be allowed to shape the stones? You're building this altar to God, and you've got all these different shapes of stones, and you're like, oh, I mean, I could make this look a lot better if I took a moment and I just broke that stone in half, and then that would fit in there nicely, and then we could break this stone. And back then, they could build things out of stone. I mean, look at the pyramids. They knew how to build things out of stone, right? But God says, don't do it. Now, why? Why would he do that? Now, there's all kinds of theories, right? You can go online and go on the research and go down a rabbit hole like I did. It could be that there were other altars in this land. And God said, you know what? I want my altars to look different than all the other altars. I don't want them to look like the other ones. So just build them out of uncut stones. It'll make them different, maybe. Maybe God, in his infinite wisdom and knowing the future, wanted to train his people so that whenever they approach an altar, they're not mesmerized by how beautiful the altar is, but rather their attention is focused on what is lying on top of the altar, the sacrifice. Because God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that they would give, a little, give them a little foreshadowing right now. That the altar is actually not the important thing. What's sacrificed on the altar is the most important thing. And in thousands of years, Jesus is going to send his son to be a sacrifice on an altar, namely a cross. And all eyes should be fixed on the sacrifice, not on the altar. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's a thousand other ideas. I mean, I, at one point, I mean, I'm ready to like Google. I'm Googling like masonry. I'm trying to understand how stones work. I was about to call you, Joe, and ask your opinion. But then God sort of like slapped me across the face and was like, what are you doing? Stop it. So I, I hit the brakes, felt like God telling me like, hey, you don't have to understand everything. And it could be that the point that I learned this week is that, you know, maybe God does value simplicity. Maybe he values simple altars. But you know what I think he values is simple obedience. I think he values a, a heart that is simply obedient to the simple instructions that he gives. Because if we can simply be obedient to the simple instructions, then he can use us in ways that we could have never imagined. I was at a conference recently, and I had the pleasure of listening to one of my favorite guys uh, named Bob Goff speak. 
So Bob Goff is this uh, author. He's written a number of books. Read any of his books. They're, they're wonderful reads. They're full of just extraordinary stories. So Bob's this wonderful Christian man uh, who seems to have deep pockets. And so he can just uh, bless people in some really unique ways. And that's sort of what his books are about. So a number of years ago, Bob was concerned that there wasn't um, education for girls in Afghanistan. So Bob's organization, Love Does, they'd already started other schools in the world. But he was like, girls in Afghanistan, we should be teaching them. But it's a dead end. Everyone says that's a dead end. So he's like, I, I want to do it, but I don't know anybody in Afghanistan. So Bob does what he does, just silly things. He just goes on the internet and tries to find somebody that lives in Afghanistan. So through a series of efforts, he finally finds someone who's willing to chat with him online on the topic. And over a period of time, they develop a relationship with this guy in Afghanistan. And then the guy says, come on over, invites him to Afghanistan, be my guest. So Bob gets on the plane, he goes to Afghanistan. He gets off the plane, he's looking for that sign with his name on it so he knows where to go in the airport, but there's nobody in the airport. So he messages his friend. He says, I'm here, where are you? And his friend says, oh, um, you can find me. I'm on such and such a street. You'll find this car. This is what it looks like. Just walk to where I am. So you have to hear Bob tell the story. He tells the story like only he can tell the story, but he says, you know, this is the point in the story where any rational human being would have been like, nah, nope, walking away, back on the plane, back to America. I'm not walking the streets of Afghanistan looking for some unmarked car. Like, this is crazy talk. I'm not going to do it. But Bob isn't a normal human being. So he walks out of the airport, and he looks for the car, and he finds the car, and he gets in the car, and it drives him away. You fast forward the story. Today, there's a girls' school in Afghanistan. The man was a powerful and influential and wealthy member of that area. And what he told Bob is he said, I, I just wanted to know if you trusted me enough to obey me. And just a little thing, because if we're going to build a school together, I have to know if you trust me enough to obey me. So I think sometimes God's up in heaven just being like, oh, come on. Do you trust me enough to obey me? Just use the uncut stones. Just do what I'm calling you to do. You don't have to understand it. It may seem silly to you. It may seem like a waste. It may seem like you can do something better if you did it your way. But can you just simply obey me? That's the altar of uncut stones. The other stones involved are the, the laws written on these other stones that are plastered. And then they're told to write the law on these plastered stones plainly. It actually says very plainly. Write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. So moms, here's another gift. God values penmanship. So tell that to your kids. They're doing their homework. It's sloppy. God values penmanship. I don't know what other application you can get from that. He tells them explicitly, write it very plainly. Another application that could be embedded in there is God values clear and plain communication. God values clear and plain communication. He wants it written very plainly. Why? So that as it's posted, these stone tablets at this thoroughfare, at Ebal, through this town of Shechem, as this trade route is established over the years, people look there and they see very plainly the law of God. 
He values very plain communication. So as we th think about that, it, it's Albert Einstein who said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. There is so much content in this book. Our faith has got a lot of information in it, and some of it's complicated. So here's what church is. It's this space we have to come together and ask the questions and try to understand it, and it is hard, and so we work through it, and we try and leave here so that we can go out into this world with something, just a nugget, just one little thing that we can explain very plainly. Right? That's what we do is we try to have groups and classes and services like this so that you can go out of here and very plainly explain something to someone about your faith. We should each be able to just simply explain our faith. And just even if it's just like, why are you a Christian? You should, you should be able to say that very plainly. How you came to know Jesus. Can you share that very plainly? What if somebody were to say to you, oh, I'm so interested. I think I would like to be that way or, or I would like to be a Christian or however they choose to frame it. Can you explain that to them very plainly? Because if you've been around Northgate for a number of weeks, then you've heard me explain it very plainly to you. And if you've been here for years, you've heard me explain it very plainly many, many times. I say it regularly. It's as simple as ABC. A, admit. Admit that you need help. Admit that you are a sinner and you need salvation. And then B is for believe. We have to believe that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. So we need to admit that we need a Savior and then we need to believe that Jesus is that Savior. And then the C is commit. We need to commit to that truth. We need to choose. That also starts with C. We need to choose that path. So it can be as simple as A, B, C. Let me give you a little secret. I do this for a living. I can explain that in so many different ways. And sometimes I want to. And then sometimes I say to myself, no, 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 explain it very plainly. I'm like, yeah, but I could tell them about redemption and reconciliation and soteriology and propitiation and transubstantiation, and I could really make it sound smart. And God says, no, 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 no. Write it very plainly. Write it very plainly. Here's another simple way that we can explain our faith. God, man, Christ, response. In four words, what is it that you and I believe? We believe that God created this world. He created it good. And he created man in it, in his own image. And he asked us to take care of it for him. But man messed that up. And we have broken. We have a broken relationship now between God and man. And that's why he sent Jesus, Jesus Christ, so that we could have a restored relationship between God and man. It's through Jesus Christ that we're restored to our relationship with God that he wanted to have with us from the beginning. But this last point is called a response because most of the people I've met in Pittsburgh over the years, they agree with me on God, that he exists, and that man is a broken person, and that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Not all, but the majority seem to. What a lot of people seem to miss is this response. That it's not just enough to be like, yeah, those are historical facts that are true. No, no, this is a response that, that I must make a change in my life. If I'm headed this way and I believe that that way is a horrible dead end, then I must respond and pivot and move my life in a different direction. It demands a response. You're like, well, that's four words and that took a while. All right, let's do it in two words. Let's write it very plainly. Let's say this to people. 
What do I believe? Well, I believe that I'm going to focus on what Jesus has done, and every other religion focuses on what we must do. So if we just look at two words, do and done, most of the religions in the world are about what we must do in order to gain access to God, in order to please the God. Christianity is unique. How so? Have you ever noticed what our centerpiece is? It's the cross. Why? Well, because our centerpiece of our faith is what Jesus Christ has done. Certainly there are things that I want to do out of gratitude for what he has done, but the centerpiece of our faith is about what Jesus has done, not about what I do. We should be able to write it very plainly so that people as they pass by can understand who God is and what his desires for them are. So we've got the altar of uncut stones, we've got the tablets of stone with the law written on it, and now we're ready for the ceremony. The ceremony is in verses 9 to 26. And so uh, I'll read you a portion of it now. It says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silent and hear, O Lord, this day. You have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. So he's saying this. These are the specific tribes that go to Ebal. These are the specific tribes that go to Gerizim. And then here's what we're going to shout out from the valley. And when we shout it out from the valley, both sides are going to respond with amen. So we'll make you guys Ebal, and we'll make you guys Gerizim, all right? It's the same, you're both saying the same thing. I'm going to read one of the curses, and then you're going to respond with amen. It'll make sense. So these are the curses they read out. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer? Amen. All right, good. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say? Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say? Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say? Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say? Amen. Wonderful. Good job. You read through that, and you really wonder, what in the world was life like back then? <laughs> you seem to have a tremendous amount of incest, and then you got this weird, like, godfather thing going on where they're paying people to hurt others and kill others in secret. And it's just, I don't understand what was happening back then, but those were the things that God chose to emphasize. We're not going to walk through each of those. Um, certainly idolatry is the first one. That's very important to God. We know that from the Ten Commandments. 
The next section is a section that we might say is on justice. It includes the honor of your parents, property rights, rights for the disabled, rights for the immigrant or the orphaned and the widowed. So our system of governance today in this democratic republic of America that we live in is significantly different than the theocracy of the children of Israel back thousands of years ago, right? So this is going to look very different in its application from that day until today. But the theme we want to pick up on here is that God values justice. God cares about property rights. God cares about the disabled and those who might want to take advantage of them. God cares about the people that are marginalized in society that everybody overlooks. He cares about issues of justice. Now, if you've been around the church a while, you know that I hate to talk about politics, and I don't, and I'm not about to talk about them now. The point I am simply making is this, that issues of justice matter to God, and they should matter to us. And I'm not encouraging you to follow any one political system on how to resolve these issues of justice. There are good options on both sides. The issue is simply to us to agree that he cares about these things, and you and I should too. Here in just a moment, we're going to scatter, and we're going to scatter as lights out into darkness. And we ought to take our light into the dark places like courtrooms and school boards and community gatherings and advocacy groups and foster care facilities and community outreach programs. Because God wants us to go into those spaces with his light to bring justice to the fatherless and to the immigrant and to the disabled. He cares about issues of justice, and he wants us to care about them as well. You know what else he cares about? Your sexual practices. He seems to care a lot about what you do sexually. He cares about how you treat one another, and he cares to make sure that you actually do what you say you're going to do. One last observation about the what before we move on to the the when and the why to close. Is the what is, what happens between Ebal and Gerizim is elaborate. It's elaborate and everyone's together and they're building things and they're eating together and they're just participating, all of them, in this ceremony. And so what I haven't figured out yet, and you can help me, we can think about this together, is what should we do as the people of God, not every week and not every year, but what should we do sometimes where we gather everyone together and we sacrifice, certainly not animals, but we do something, right, that shows that we love God, that reminds us that all together we could build something together, we could eat together, we can celebrate, we can be reminded that we are all together the people of God. But we can think about that. The when. I'll only spend a second on this. We think it's around 1400 BC. And it's right when they enter into the promised land. They're being reminded. The why, though. Why? Why is all this important? Why is it important to keep the commandments? Why is it important for us to obey God? Why is it important to obey? So, if you pay attention to the news at all, I am only just a little bit. You've heard about this thing called, I have to read it because I don't even remember what it's called, ChatGPT. Has anyone gone on a deep dive on ChatGPT? Please show me your hands. ChatGPT, I want to see who I'm talking to. Okay, to the rest of us, listen, the robots may very well take over the world. (laughs) I don't know know what to do with ChatGPT. 
All right, so you know how Google exists and you can type something into Google and it'll say like, here's an article you should read. Well, now they've created this whole new world where it doesn't just say here's an article to read, but it like starts talking to you, the computer, and it starts telling you things better than you could ever say them yourself. The, the robots are getting so smart. So there's just this database somewhere in this cloud of magic, and then it types onto your computer answers to questions. So I ask it, I'm like, I'm hearing about it in the news, I'm listening to podcasts, it's like, what should preachers do with chat GPT? And I have some real opinions on that. Uh, probably avoid it, but um, I ask it. I'm like, okay, let me see what this does. Why should I obey? I type that into the computer. Okay, and it tells me, you should obey because it will help maintain the social order, provide safety and well-being to people, it will provide respect, it will encourage learning and personal growth, and it will contribute to a greater sense of purpose in your life. I was like, oh, that's good. <laughs> but then I thought, of course the robot is trained to know to obey because that's what the robot's supposed to do, is obey the human. So I'm like, okay, it knows why it should obey. So I type in next, why should a Christian obey God? And then it starts typing and I start reading and I'm like, oh, wow. Love and gratitude is the first thing it says. Love and gratitude. Christians believe that God is their creator, sustainer, and the source of all goodness. They obey God out of love and gratitude for his love, mercy, and grace extended towards them. Obedience is seen as a response to God's love and a way to express gratitude for the salvations and blessings that they have received. I was like, what's going on here? That is so well written. And then the computer kept writing. It kept populating words on my screen. It wasn't done. It said, also, Christians should obey because of divine guidance. Christians believe that God is the ultimate source of wisdom and guidance. They see God's commands and teachings as a path to righteousness and a fulfilling life. Obedience to God's instructions is viewed as a way to align their lives with God's purposes and live according to his will. It's like, that's good. And it's still writing. Christians should obey God because of trust and faith. Christians trust in God's wisdom, sovereignty, and faithfulness. They believe that God's commands are for their ultimate good, and even if they don't always understand the reasons behind them, obedience becomes an expression of trust in God's character. And it kept writing. Christians should obey God because it builds a relationship with God. Obedience is viewed by a way to cultivate and deepen the relationship between Christians and God. By following God's commands, Christians seek to draw closer to him and experience his presence and grow in their spiritual journey. And it kept writing. It said that Christians should obey God because it's a witness to others. Christians believe that their obedience to God's commands can serve as a testimony to others. By living in according to God's principles, they aim to demonstrate the transformative power of faith and inspire others to seek a relationship with God. Obedience can be a reflection of the commitment to Christ in a way that reflects his love and character to the world. So some people do this and then they're like, well, why do I going to write a sermon next week? I, my commitment to you is to never again read to you from chat GPT, just so that we're clear. Um, and I, I think it's going to be bad for human civilization, but we can talk about that in the foyer. Um, why? Deuteronomy chapter 27 actually tells us why. Sounds a lot like what we just heard. But specifically, Moses says this in verse 9. He says, keep silent and listen. You have become the people of the Lord your God. Next verse, you shall therefore obey. 
He says, listen, you're my people. I love you. I've chosen you. You're my people. There's nothing you can do to change that. We're going to talk about obedience in just a second. But here's the foundation. You're my people. Obey or disobey, you're my people. It's like parenting 101. No matter what you do, you're my child, and I'll love you. It doesn't matter what you do. I'll always love you. Now let's talk about obedience. Let's talk about obedience. Hopefully that obedience flows out of this identity that you have as a child of God. And you have the sense of gratitude and joy. You have a sense of that's how you're going to be guided. You have a sense in which you're not always going to understand, but you're going to trust. And you have a sense in which you're going to live out this amazing life. You're going to have such purpose as you obey what he is telling you to do. So we, the who is all people. The what is a reminder to keep the commandments of God. Where? Well, we were at Mount Gerizim and Ebal today, but I don't know where God's going to take you this week. Let me give you a closing illustration that maybe ties into Mother's Day. So we can talk about spiritual mothers because not all of us are physical mothers, but the women in the room have the opportunity, the potential to become a spiritual mother. So here's an illustration of a spiritual mother. It comes from a story that's told by the Christian author and speaker, John Dixon. He's from Australia. In Australia, in the past, the public schools used to offer a class where you could come and learn about Scripture. And so John, in his teen years, goes to these classes in his school to learn about Scripture. And the woman who's teaching these classes is a woman named Glenda. She herself is a middle-aged mother. Glenda invites her class to her house on Friday afternoons for lunch and conversations about Jesus. And John Dixon and his friends come to those classes. And after a while, they come for the food. And after a while, they come because this Jesus character is so interesting. Now, John says he and his five friends were some of the worst kids in the school, some of the worst sinners that she could have gathered in her home. He said there was one moment where his friend Daniel was so intoxicated they didn't know where to take him. They knew they couldn't take him home because his dad would not tolerate that. They didn't want to leave him on the street, so they took Daniel to Glenda's house. They roll up to Glenda's house at about midnight, and she's just wrapping up a dinner party. But she escorts the boys into the back, says, put Daniel in bed, clean him up in the shower. We'll deal with all this in the morning. In the morning, the boys return, and Daniel's sitting there eating bacon and eggs with Glenda, and they're talking. Now, Daniel, or uh, John Dixon, who's telling this story, says, like, we knew she didn't like our drinking habits. She told us. She was a teetotaler, and she regularly told us to avoid alcohol. But we knew that Glenda loved sinners. And we knew that she would welcome us, even in the midst of our sin. And so after about six months of scripture classes and Friday afternoons and the incident with Daniel... John writes, we found ourselves thinking that Jesus was real and inescapable and powerful, and we, he and his five friends, gave their lives to Jesus. So I don't know who your who is, right? Glenda's who were these really sinful teenage boys. Maybe, maybe that's what your who is. Maybe your who is just the children in your home Maybe your who is somebody at work. I don't know who your who is, but, but God can bring to mind who it is that you might be able to encourage to keep the commandments. Or maybe your what is different than teaching them the Ten Commandments. Maybe the what is something else that you need to teach them about God. But there's a who and there's a what. And there's a where in your life this week as you're going to go to all these different places. And there's a when in your life this week where God could potentially align an opportunity for you. But the why. Why? 
because you want to correct someone's behavior? Certainly not. The why is because you know that God loves sinners. And so I want to love sinners too. And I want them to know how much God loves them and how much he wants them to be a part of his family. 